Welcome to the third episode of the Human Factor Podcast. Today's content is sponsored by Mu'ayyad Karachi's question. Are humans good or bad? I'm going to take this as an opportunity to discuss the broader subject of the dominance of evil. Are we born good or are we born bad? Join me on today's episode as we discuss this further. Hi, I'm Riyah Layhel. Thank you for choosing me to be your weekly reminder on your journey to intentionally owning your success. In this podcast, I explore what constitutes the complexity of the human being and try to understand the reasons behind what people call failures. I talk about imposter syndrome, morality, and other scientific and philosophical subjects. But what matters is that I very much love people. I love to see them happy and successful. I don't think I'll ever say this enough. I love people very, very much. Okay, let's do this. Now, I wouldn't want to start this discussion by digging deep into the notions of the good and the bad and the philosophy of morality and ethics. But I'd rather ask a question. What do you think is the first sign of civilization and if you're thinking of going in the direction of tools arrows clay pots that's really not that and you'll be surprised it's a healed femur in a 15,000 year old skeleton can you imagine the first evidence of humans transitioning into civilization, the very first ever, was the state of a bone in a 15,000-year-old skeleton. Now, to put it into context, a femur requires about two months to heal, and the early humans were constantly on the move. They didn't have the luxury to wait for a bone to heal and for somebody to actually feel better to catch up. They had to leave their own behind. And then, this femur tells us a lot about this transitioning from a state of harshness, even if by obligation, but it was a state of harshness, to a state of kindness. This is because two months meant that these humans, these early humans, had to settle they had to have conversation, they had to take care of each other, and they had to take care of the injured and sick person. And so the onset of civilization was truly an act of care. Anthropologist Margaret Mead is credited with introducing the idea that the very first sign of civilization is in the healing of a fractured femur. She was also known to advocate for the result of conscious, thoughtful, and collective action. And how this collective effort that is done by conscious and aware citizens can change the world. Which actually begs the question, why do we need to change the world? To go back to the notions of morality and telling the story of the femur to morality... The fact that humans, the early humans, cared gives us a hint that they had some sort of moral compass. Care is a characteristic of 
morality. Care is moral and ethical people do care. And at some point, we do ask ourselves, how did we move from a state of care, from this state of goodness, of stopping by to help the other, to a state of evil and violence, of murder and brutality that is reigning, that is prevalent in the world? And now, according to new scientific research, apparently, humans are hardwired for altruism and empathy. Like, apparently, empathy is embedded in us, which is so paradoxical because then why do we need so much effort to be good? And if we are born empathetic, why is the world so violent, so uncaring, and so unkind? Why aren't we born in a world that is fair and safe? So are people born inherently good or inherently bad? This has been the subject of a centuries-long debate. Aristotle argued that morality is acquired. We learn how to be moral, but we are not born moral. We are originally amoral creatures. Marcus Aurelius said that life is neither good nor evil, but only a place for good and evil. But then again, Marcus Aurelius is really talking about life, not about people, and definitely not about the probability of people being good or evil. Then there's, of course, the pacifist point of view, which I find quite simplistic, that we are neither good or bad, that we are both good and bad, and that these are the two sides of the same coin. We have to integrate both. I just find it to be quite simplistic and quite confusing. Kant talks about the depravity of human nature, a disposition to adopt an immoral behavior, a propensity, a perversity, which he also called the bad heart. And this is actually passing judgment. I mean, this is quite a Christian way of looking at things. It kind of reminds of Jesus casting judgment upon Judas Iscariot, saying that he is the son of Satan and that he was not fit for um, a redemption. This is quite a tendency, an inclination, according to Kant, to act either according to the moral law or in opposition to the moral law. And so there was the emergence of the notion of the radical evil, of the bad heart that influences the life of the person and that kind of disqualifies them from redemption. And the two most famous figures of this centuries-old debate about the good and the evil are undoubtedly Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Thomas Hobbes had a very pessimistic view of mankind's propensity to act in a morally com commendable way, while Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a little bit more opportunistic. He advocated that humans are inherently good, but that civilization destroys this propensity to do good. We, like in our modern era, we have Sigmund Freud, who considered that newborns do not have a moral leaning of any kind, while 
psychologist Paul Bloom argues that morality is not something that we learn. It is something that we are all born with. Quite on the opposite end, <laughs> all of these opinions, like they are very confusing. They're very divergent. And all of this doesn't answer the question of how we make use of morality. Like, are we going to become moral? Like, are we going to follow the moral code of law? Or are we simply going to abide by this propensity to do evil? There is this interesting theory about just world beliefs. This is a hypothesis, a bias of some sort, that people expect that good actions be rewarded in a good way while bad actions are punished. So people, according to this bias, do good because they expect that they will be rewarded accordingly while also harboring the belief that evil actions will be punished. And as part of adult morality, if every single good action should be met with a positive response and every single bad action is met with a negative response, well then, we're doing good not because we want to, not out of a selfless motivation, but because it kind of reflects on us in a good way. It reflects positively on us, which means that there is some kind of a hint of selfishness in this. Now, the thing is, it is really difficult to be virtuous because a virtue, or let's call it in this context, a morally good action must stem from a very stable emotional disposition, which means that I am deliberately and disinterestedly acting in a good way for the sake of the estate aesthetic beauty of the moral act. And so, come to think of it, if I'm going to apply this criterion to every single action out there, how many actions are going to pass the test? Very few of them. This filtering is quite restrictive. But now, people do have moral values, and the extent to which we consider an action to be moral or immoral, to be good or evil varies widely from one culture to another. Mm. From this, we can talk from the reasonable point of view that morality is a humane phenomenon, which raises two questions, whether our moral sense is part of our human nature, that is, of our biological architecture, or if ethical values are the products of biological evolution. Researchers studied babies to answer this question. Babies have what is qualified as an innate goodness. We like to believe that they are born with a sense of morality. Babies smile all the time. They do not inflict any harm. They like kindness. According to some scientific experiments, we'll always pick uh, the kinder option, the milder option, and sometimes they will look with sadness and disappointment uh, to an aggressive action. But then we cannot attribute to these actions the quality of moral foundations, which represent a fully fledged capacity to judge the actions of others and 
entail a sense of justice. I personally think that being born with the ability to distinguish right from wrong doesn't mean that our nature is inherently good. And regardless of how babies react to certain phenomena, they apparently do start with a basic apparatus, but it is not enough to be a moral compass. I would like to believe the contrary, that this marvelous aspect of morality that we thrive to have is the product of our culture of effort that we pour on developing ourselves. It is not the product of biology. I think it's quite unfair to say that it is a product of biology, especially that it is so hard to acquire. It is so hard to pick the morally good action. And it is so hard to pick the course of empathy and kindness and care. And yes, we do care about the weak. We do care about the mistreated animals. We care about freedom. We care about equality. We care so much that we try sometimes to extend our kindness to our enemies. And even if we fall short, very short, sometimes quite far from our moral principles, these aspirations to do good shape who we are. They shape our social circle. And it is quite unjust to just explain it as part of a natural selection, like something that you are born with. Since the 1960s, psychologists have been studying children who lived in violent homes and who were subjected to physical and sexual abuse. Those children are more likely to commit crimes when they grow up. But even so, most youngsters who are mistreated do not necessarily grow up to be criminals. Here, our genes come into the picture. A 2002 study found that a particular gene variation could predict antisocial behavior in grown-ups who were mistreated as kids. This gene controls the production of an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. This enzyme is linked to aggression. A kid who is neglected during his childhood and who possesses this variation of the gene that produced low levels of monoamine oxidase is more likely to develop antisocial personality disorder, a criminal persona, and could have a predisposition to violent behavior. In contrast, a boy who grew up in a similar environment but who produced more of the monoamine oxidase rarely developed problems such as those. Neuroscience does point out to this quite interesting mechanism that explains our behaviors, ranging from completely altruistic behavior like helping someone in need to committing very violent acts. If someone has the right set of genes and should they happen to be interacting with the wrong environment, this is the most eligible combo for genocide, mass murders, and killings and other acts of violence. Another psychological experiment that could help answer the question of um, propensity to do good or to do bad is the Stanford Prison Experiment, led by psychology professor Philip Zimbardo. Now, this is one of the most unethical experiments to ever have been conducted. And this is the experiment that pushed universities to adopt uh, very strict ethical frameworks when uh, conducting um, uh, scientific research. Now, the Stanford prison experiment was a two-week simulation of a prison environment with the purpose of examining the effects of situational variables 
on people's reactions and behaviors. It is worthy to note that all participants had their psychological stability assessed before they were authorized to participate. And although the experiment was supposed to last for two weeks, only six days after uh, the start, Zimbardo was prompted to terminate it because the guards were so immersed in their roles that they were physically and emotionally abusing the prisoners. And although there were associates to Zimbardo in this project, only Christina Masla actually intervened to confront uh, the professor. The thing in this experiment is that good people who are psychologically sound and sane can be tempted by authority and power. They can be seduced to harm fellow human beings because they are immersing themselves in challenging situations. And in these emotionally and mentally saturated situations, it is not improbable that humans can transform radically in striking inconsistency with their character, morality, personality, and they can become totally different people when they are in these contexts. And actually, this brings us back to the idea of civilization and to the idea of care that was mentioned at the beginning of this episode. In the context of my uh, PhD defense and the subject of my thesis, which also revolves around ethics and morality and the greater good, I did question the validity of the civilization. Civilization demands a selfless abstention from inflicting suffering to our fellow human beings. Going back to the Stanford prison experiment, if anyone, any human, any person blindly accepts an authority's order to inflict gratuitous pain to a fellow human, then this person cannot claim to be civilized. The conclusion that I got to is that we should never consider ourselves smarter than a given situation, especially a situation where psychological factors come into play uh, that are more complex than what they look like at the surface. Human beings react in a highly complex way to the conditions that surround them. Yes, there are a lot of individuals that are driven by an abusive character and who can be tempted to enjoy total or absolute control over others. This is evil, and again, it is easy. It would have been harder for the prison guards to abstain from this gruesome, demeaning, and dishonoring behavior. This is reinforcement, this is group reinforcement. Had one prison guard acted in a violent way, and only one prison guard, he would have been the exception, but it was a collective action that encouraged the guards to gain total control over helpless prisoners. Now, every human being is an individual with a tendency. We all have tendencies, but not every human being is a murderer and not every human being is capable of homicide or other extremely uh, violent crimes. And just as the prison guards encouraged this mutual destructive behavior, it is also very much commendable to encourage better behavior, to take action and reinforce the abstention from engaging in evil and harmful conduct. Just as a dangerous situation can induce dangerous behavior, 
a healthy situation can induce healthy way of thinking, which can translate into a healthy decision and a healthy behavior. In this context, I would like to introduce the idea of positive conditioning. Now, it is true that we do not know if we are born with a moral compass or if we aren't, but we do know that we can learn to set this compass to point north. We have the opportunity to choose how to behave even in the most challenging environments. We have the choice to choose a better course of action, even if very few people actually do so. I tend to look at it from the perspective of the power of large groups. Being in a group kind of diffuses responsibility, and the members of a group can become capable of a certain type of conduct of which they are not capable of individually. When a person identifies uh, with a group, it, this also increases the judgmental attitude towards others. In some extreme cases, this can lead to dehumanizing the other. Yes, there are situations where the greater power of bad events can lead to dissatisfying outcomes, can lead to evil outcomes, bad emotions, bad circle of friends, bad feedback, bad information. We are sometimes motivated to just avoid the bad rather than to pursue the good because it is easier to dodge than to actually make the effort to work on ourselves and to pursue what is good. This is why, for example, if we receive one negative feedback, we need five other positive uh, feedbacks to taper for this particular negative criticism. And so the most recognized reason that evil is stronger than good is that sometimes bad actually overcomes the good. Sometimes it's just that we are attuned to preventing bad things from happening instead of striving to maximize the good things that can happen. We tend to say, I don't want to drive fast so that I don't crash into a car or into a wall or like have an accident. But we don't underline that we don't want to drive fast, probably to just enjoy the road, to enjoy the journey. We seem to give much more attention to avoiding bad outcomes than approaching good outcomes. And then, of course, we can really say that human beings are more prone to do evil than to do good. But it's not because they are born like that. And even if they were born like that, probably it's just because evil is easier than goodness. If you want to put it philosophically, greater evil is easier than greater goodness. And if I want to sum it all up, I like to look at morality at like a synergy, a synthesis of what we learn, what we discover, what we create, what we invent, and what we don't know. I personally do not like the idea that human beings are inherently bad or inherently good. It just gives such a high moral ground to the people who think that they are acting from a very laudable moral perspective. I am quite laughing at myself right now because this is how I used to think when I wrote my PhD dissertation and I defended my thesis, 
this is this was a little bit my mode of thinking and right now i'm recording this episode and i'm laughing and i'm saying it's really ridiculous to say that we are born evil or good it gives us such little credit i personally choose to treat people with kindness as much as i can and i do fall short sometimes there are some things that i just cannot control but I try as much as I can to the extent of my capacity to experience the state of others so that I am more inclined to treat them the way that I would like to treat myself. And although it might be true that when we are born, we have this primitive, incomplete sense of morality, but it is obvious that it can evolve and it is obvious that the people we surround ourselves with, our culture have great impact on who we are and who we become. I do have the tendency to say that the world is going in a very negative direction. I do have the tendency to say that if, like to think sometimes, if we were truly good, wouldn't we probably have not been in the place that we are right now? violence everywhere, famine, murders, wars. I like to believe that people are inherently good, but with everything that's been happening and the context in which we're living, it is becoming increasingly harder to act in a good, selfless way. So let us give ourselves credit. There is such tremendous joy in the noble pursuit of what is good and there is such satisfaction in feeling the merit that we may have had a bad character, but we pursued the good in us. It's not enough to say, I don't want to steal because I don't want to go to jail or I don't want to harm someone else. I don't want to steal because it can help me become the better version of myself. Yesterday, I was having this conversation with a friend that we wish that life was better, but it is just not. We wish that our life was much, much more beautiful in the sense of just and fair, but unfortunately it is not. So the question is, what are we doing to make this world a better place to live in? It is nice to dwell on all of the things we talked about and to ask ourselves, are people good or are people bad? But the truth is, Unless we listen to people, we will never know. Not that we're responsible for that or responsible for them, but as part of the altruistic point of view, I like to believe that we are able to be nice for the sake of being nice, for the sake of the moral aesthetic. I do enjoy thinking about philosophical matters, about the bad, the good, the evil, beautiful and the ugly, but I like to think that we can aspire to unselfish morality. I like to think that as rational individuals and as reasonable individuals as well, we can truly aspire to apply a universal moral code, a positive moral code to act selflessly, to extend kindness to the other and to preserve the other. Because when I do preserve the other, in their integrity, mentally and morally, 
I am also preserving myself. Thank you for listening to the Human Factor Podcast. Please help the podcast reach the widest audience possible. Rate it five stars, subscribe, and share. Episodes are available on Spotify, Anagami, and Apple Podcasts and are out every Thursday. Would you like to tell your story? This is a free speech platform with no filters added. Reach out to me. I'd love to hear you. See you next time.